Welcome to the Yoga Hour, offering insights and practices for spiritually conscious living in today's world. Here is your host, Dr. Laurel Trujillo. Welcome to the Yoga Hour, where we talk about yoga in all its depth and breadth as a path to spiritually conscious, fulfilled living in today's world. I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo, host and producer of the show. Today, we're going to be talking about talking to ourselves, self-talk, how we can transform our inner voice to offer ourselves more self-compassion and less self-criticism. My guest today is Dr. Rachel Goldsmith-Turo. She is a psychotherapist and research scientist who has trained hundreds of individuals in the use of mindfulness, self-compassion, and cognitive behavioral skills. She is a frequent speaker at national and international conferences. Dr. Turo is the author of several books, including Mindfulness Skills for Trauma and PTSD, and the book we're going to be discussing today, The Self-Talk Workout, Six Scientific-Based scientific-backed strategies to dissolve self-criticism and transform the voice in your head. Dr. Turo's website is rachelturo.com, and Turo is spelled T-U-R-O-W, rachelturo.com. She is active on LinkedIn at Rachel Goldsmith Turo. You can follow her there as well. Welcome to the Yoga Hour, Rachel Turo. I'm really delighted you could join me today on the show. Thank you so much, Laurel. It's great to be here. So let's start with a mindfulness moment, a yoga moment, a moment of being right here and right now. Oh. So let's begin by just paying attention to our bodies bringing our awareness to our bodies in space. Where are our feet? What part of our weight is supported by the chair? And just turning our attention now to the breath and just noticing as we take a fully conscious breath on the next inhale and exhale. On the next inhale, noticing the cool air in the nostrils. And on the exhale, feeling the change, how it's now warm from passing through our lungs. And just keeping our attention on the breath, here is something to contemplate. From a daily inspiration by Yogacharya O'Brien from her book, A Single Blade of Grass. Words spoken with conviction shape one's life and experience. Consciously and unconsciously, we use them every day to wound or heal, curse or bless, destroy or build. Each word is a seed planted in the soil of life. They put energy into motion, giving form to thought, and motivation to intention. Words are the sacred manifesting power of God within. Let them serve love. Oh. 
Once again, Dr. Rachel Turo, welcome to the Yoga Hour. I'm really delighted that you can join me today to talk about self-criticism, how we can do a better job of noticing it and dissolving it. This is such an important thing, I think, something that many, many people struggle with. You are a psychotherapist, mindfulness and meditation practitioner and teacher, as well as a research scientist. And as, I, as a physician, what I really appreciated about your book is that you do bring so much science, so much of the science that is on this topic to light and incorporate it in your book. And um, I was actually really pretty amazed at how much science there is on self-criticism. I was really not aware of that. So what led you to write this book at this time? Well, it's been a long time brewing. I've sat with so many patients in therapy. And when I was in my training, I understood that self-criticism was a big part of depression. People with depression often feel really bad about themselves, bad about being depressed, you know, low self-worth, um, not a lot of confidence or faith. And what I didn't understand was that self-criticism is actually related to a whole range of mental health issues. So when I started digging into the research, I learned more information that matched my experience in the therapy room that self-criticism makes anxiety worse. It worsens stress. It worsens post-traumatic stress. It's linked with worse outcomes for substance use, addictions, and self-harm. So I began to understand harsh self-criticism as a trans-diagnostic problem, something that spans mental health conditions, this aspect that can make any experience worse if you criticize yourself harshly for it. And if that sort of becomes the default way that you relate to yourself, which is very common. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Definitely. So as I was reading your book, I was thinking about your journey. And I think you say in the book that you've, this has been your area of focus for something like 20 years. So I was thinking about that. And I was thinking about all of the scientific principles and results that you incorporated in the book. And I was just reflecting on and wondering about what was you know something important or helpful that you learned as you went along from scientific research about self-criticism? Well, one aspect that really stood out for me is the habitual nature mm -hmm. of self-criticism. I think a lot of people want to be nicer to themselves, <laughs> you know, but it's not really clear how. And I think there's this idea out there that you can just choose like, okay, mm -hmm. I'm going to be nicer to myself, but it turns out that self-criticism is pretty, you know, um, habitual. Mm -hmm. So the brain is very powerful, right? Your mind is powerful. It learns from its habits, from its environment. And it's almost like smoking. You could start in a few different ways in a few different contexts, but then it sort of takes on a life of its own. Mm -hmm. And then if you want to shift how you relate to yourself, um, it often takes some very intentional practice. And I think that surprises people sometimes, but mm. if you put that in a physical health context, you know, the way you move your body, the muscles that you use, we have those habits. And if you want to change them, 
you probably need to practice several times and not mm -hmm. just decide you wanted to use your muscles differently, but actually practice using them differently. Mm -hmm. I think that's such a great, such a great way of describing it because it is like a muscle that we need to build. It's an inner muscle to start thinking. So obviously if we want to become more physically fit, we can't just say, okay, I am more physically fit. We can't just tell right. ourselves That'd I am nice. more physically fit. Exactly. <laughs> That's not how it works. Right. We actually have to do something about it. So I like the fact that you really stress that in the book, that it's a practice that you have to repeat. That's something that, you know, you can learn through time. This gets to the question though of why why is self-criticism such a strong element for so many of us? Yeah, and the evidence indicates that there are lots of factors that contribute. So one of them is if you have experienced critical people in your life, and most of us have, and when those people are your parents or your teachers or your coaches or your peers, it really sinks in. Even mm -hmm. if you know it's wrong, even if part of you thinks, oh, it's terrible, they're treating me this way, it can get in under your skin and then um, people then internalize it and then start to relate to themselves this way. And so the evidence shows, for instance, that people who have experienced racism or homophobia have this higher level of self-criticism. The same mm -hmm. is true for emotional abuse or bullying. We know that social media is a factor that for most people, more exposure mm -hmm. to social media leads to more self-criticism, more of that perfection, mm -hmm. perfectionism, self-judgment. And then, you know, modeling. Are you around other people who kind of beat themselves up inside? Um, did your peers do that? Did your parents do that? Mm -hmm. And then we have this culture of competition, right? You know, who's the best? Who's the most beautiful? Who, you know, gets the award for the best performance. And um, and I think that culture of competition often conditions us to compare ourselves to everybody else at all times. And mm -hmm. uh, there might be some sort of, you know, small advantage to, you know, wanting to fit in, et cetera, but it becomes a really painful way to live, this constant self-evaluation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. One of the things I really liked in the book is you talk about how um, I think for some people, some of us, we believe that we're providing motivation for ourselves, right? We're actually um, by this inner critic, we're pushing ourselves on, we're driving ourselves on. And maybe that's a model that we had, like you said, from our parents or other people in our life. But you point out in the book that that's actually totally backwards, that that kind of negative self-talk really isn't motivating, although the fear, and as you, as you rightly point out, is, oh, if I don't, if I let myself quiet this inner critic, or if I work on having more positive self-talk, that's going to make me lazy. <laughs> then I'm not, then I'm going to be a, a couch potato. I'm just going to be lying around reading novels and eating bonbons, right? Sounds kind of nice, but yeah, no. Uh... <laughs> I think that you you can think of where we're trying to go if, if you're wanting to work on healthy self-talk. If you want to work on healthy self-talk, you're trying to get to the place of being a good friend. You know, right. a good friend to yourself wouldn't say, okay, never work on any of your goals again. Your good friend would say, yeah, right on. Let's, let's work on these goals, but let's do this in this, uh, you know, encouraging kind way instead right. of you're so terrible. You can't do this. You did this wrong. You did that wrong. You know, oh no, but you did all this right stuff too. That's cool. So, um, 
you know, I also think that the type of criticism really matters. And that question comes up, like, is self-criticism ever useful? Right. And I do think that it is. Sometimes there are things about ourselves that we would like to change or grow. Maybe we want to take better care of our bodies, be in touch with friends more. Maybe there's a project we really would like to invest in. Mm-hmm. And so that that voice or part of ourselves might be saying, hey, you know, we really want to pay attention to this. And I really think it's the tone. You know, mm-hmm. it's like if there's a specific aspect of, you know, your sport or instrument that you're trying to improve, you could be very targeted. Okay, I really have to, you know, hold the tennis racket differently. And I'm going to really try hard to do this new, um, you know, sequence on the guitar I think that's really different from telling yourself you're bad, awful, terrible, or just this right. feeling, ugh, you know, evaluation. So I think the targeted criticism or um, thinking, oh gosh, you know, my behavior isn't matching my values and there's something I'd like to change. I think that's okay. But mm-hmm. again, can you have the same goal, but support yourself in a way that's more kind and encouraging? I actually love the story that you told in the book about the coach of the Golden State Warriors. Yes. Yeah. Do you, do you want to just mention that for our listeners? Yes. Um, so this was um, a coach that, you know, is sensitive to the fact that players often are really harsh for themselves for what isn't going well. You know, they missed the shot. <laughs> it didn't work out. The play didn't happen. And it's really easy to get mentally stuck and then to have your game deteriorate when you're, um, you know, ruminating about what didn't go well. So instead, this particular coach used to show a play at halftime, uh, play a video of all the best moments of the things that were going right to condition the players. Okay, this is great. You did all these things really well. Let's do more of this. This is what we're going for. And even though we don't have that, you know, technology and position, we can do the same thing in our own minds. We can try to marinate for a few minutes in, okay, what, what did go well? Even if it seems insignificant, even if you didn't notice at the time, you still have that opportunity. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You make a distinction in the book between uh, self-talk or positive self-talk and self-esteem and that they're different. You know, having good self-esteem is different than having um, that than having uh, self-talk. Could you say more about that? Sure. I mean, the words sound sort of the same, so it's it's easy to get confused about it. Self-esteem has an evaluative component. Mm-hmm. It's about how good you are, how well you regard yourself. Do you feel good about yourself? Do you feel like you have these good qualities, desirable qualities? And self-esteem, it turns out, you know, we know from the research is pretty fragile. It's often pretty context dependent, which as you can imagine is a really big problem. For instance, if uh, kids are feeling great about themselves in high school and then go to college and, you know, suddenly they aren't the smartest one, their self-esteem sort of collapses because it was dependent on a specific context and specific outcomes and these comparisons to other people. So self-talk or the way that you relate to yourself might be affected by those contexts that might include aspects of how well you're doing. 
but you can generate a type of self-encouragement or self-compassion that is really not dependent on the outcomes. So mm. self-compassion means relating to yourself in a friendly way, even in moments of difficulty or failure, mm. perhaps most of all in those moments when it's hardest mm-hmm. to say, oh, I'm so sorry. That was so painful. You're going to be okay. I'm going to help you get through this. What do you think could be helpful to you know, feel a little bit better today? And building that muscle of self-compassion is much different from self-esteem because it just doesn't have that evaluative component. Mm-hmm. Your aim is to be a kind friend to yourself no matter what. And mm-hmm. it doesn't matter how attractive you are or how well you rate yourselves in these various domains. It's just friendship. Mm-hmm. I, I've often been struck by that. Some Sometimes the things I hear myself saying inside and I think, you know, I would never say that to a friend of mine in a similar situation, like something bad happens, you know, but I would never, ever say that, you know, to a friend. So it's like developing our inner voice as a friend, you know, that yeah. uh, that can be supportive rather than jumping to these kind of more global statements about ourselves. You know, you're so clumsy, you're so whatever. Yeah. And I think sometimes self-criticism can serve a function. I mean, for a lot of us, we're sort of used to it. So it can be very comforting and it's familiarity. Like, right. okay, no matter what's going on, I know I can blame myself. And maybe that, that you know, chastising myself is like at least one action I know I can take. Or maybe it helps preserve a sense of control. You right. know, if things go wrong, oh, I can blame myself. If I'd just done it differently, or if I were better, then I would have mm-hmm. gotten a better outcome. It can be kind of scarier to think no matter what I did, this mm-hmm. bad outcome could have happened. And that's that's a little bit scary. Mm-hmm. Oh, it is. One of the one of the um, yoga practices is non-attachment. So going ahead, doing our best job doesn't mean detaching totally from, you know, from act from action, from taking action. But what it means is doing our best and then letting go, you know, of the of the result. And that's a real <laughs> that's a real practice. Um, but I think what you're saying is kind of pointing, you know, pointing in that direction. So the subtitle of your book uh, is, or the title of your book is the self-talk workout. And I thought workout was a really interesting word that you chose. Can you say more about that? Yes, I chose workout to reflect this idea that it's a process to develop healthy self-talk. It's often not sufficient to just have the intention. I'd like to be nicer to myself or kinder to myself. So then I was interested in, well, what is the process? And there's a good news that there isn't just one way. We have the evidence that there are several effective ways to treat yourself more kindly. And you know that that can lead to all sorts of mental health benefits um, and better outcomes. So I do though want to, you know, encourage people to think about it as a workout. I remember hearing one meditation teacher, I think it was um, Gunaratana say, um, not every day is payday with meditation that, you know, you might have several sessions and yoga can be like this too, that you feel weren't very remarkable. Um, But then another session where you feel really transformed, but those sessions that felt not so remarkable were still helpful, even if you didn't realize it because Mm -hmm. it was part of the practice. Mm -hmm. 
Yes, I think that's that's wonderful to point to that, that we have that as that experience. You also give a Thich Nhat Hanh quote that I was going to dig through the book, but I don't think I can find it quickly. But it's basically about how certainly there's suffering. Oh, I know it's in the section where, you know, you're not even if we practice positive self-talk, it's not like we're going to be happy all the time. Yeah. Nobody can be happy all the time. That's part of life to not be happy all the time. But um, the, the Thich Nhat Hanh quote is something like there's suffering, but then there's more suffering that we can add to that by our by this process that we're talking about, by this negative, you know, self-talk. That's like adding suffering to suffering. Did you want to say more about that? Yes, I think the quote is something like, when we know how to suffer, mm. we suffer much, much less. Mm. And so it doesn't say no suffering. That'd be great, but there's still suffering. But I will completely, I would much rather have less suffering. So mm. when we know how to suffer, we suffer much, much less. So I, I, you know, I don't actually use the phrase positive self-talk because I think it's a little bit vague mm-hmm. and I do think it sort of conveys that you could be happy all the time if you just talk to yourself, you know, right. But there are real problems in the world and all of our lives have real problems and real suffering. Not everything can be solved with self-talk, not at all. Um, and so I save for the last chapter, what I think is sort of this harder part, which is making room for some of the most painful and difficult feelings that we encounter and trying to do it in the most loving and supportive way possible so mm-hmm. that we suffer much, much less. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's, that's such a great, that's such a great way of looking at it. Um, I had already mentioned this yoga practice of non-attachment, but there are so many practices from Kriya Yoga that I uh, was struck by that, you know, your work really fits into a yoga perspective as well. I know your tradition comes from, you know, your meditation tradition is mindfulness, but um, self-study, which is one of the three main practices of Kriya Yoga, as well as this idea of practicing kindness to ourselves, self-compassion, some call it harmlessness, this ahimsa practice, as well as practicing truthfulness. Um, because in truth, Uh, One of the things that is taught in Kriya Yoga is that our inner, deepest inner self is um, associated with the divine. It's our link to the divine. And so when we are, you know, practicing this, like really, you're lazy, you're fat, you're ugly, whatever our internal, you know, content is, um, you... um, you, you know, you realize that that in from a yoga perspective, that's not that's not ultimate truth. That's not who we you know, who we really are. Um, in the introduction, to your book, you have a section called self talk is really, really important, says science. And as I've already mentioned, I love the you know, the interaction with science. So how did you use science to develop and probably perfect because I know you've also done a lot of studies of your own, you're also a research scientist, putting, you know, students through, I think you said four week uh, courses in um, in these principles and finding that it really reduced significantly many negative things like anxiety and depression and that sort of thing. So how did you use science to, or how did you incorporate science in these strategies? Well, first I did a lot of literature review. So I really just, you know, I just love to nerd out and just have the questions and say, well, what, what did the data say? What have people done before? What seems yeah. to be helpful? And some of the strategies that seem to be very helpful in improving self-talk are cognitive reappraisal. That's a term for seeing the same situation in a different way. Mm. And so, for example, one of the strategies that I use is called spot the success, where you list 10 things today that you 
10, 10 actions that you've taken today to help your life, someone else or the world. And these mm. are things we usually just discount, like taking right. out the trash or the compost or texting or emailing somebody, but they all matter. Mm-hmm. So this idea that every action matters. And if you spend a little bit more time with your mental focus, noticing what has gone well, you can shift your perspective a little bit. Mindfulness is another um, you know, group of ideas, practices, techniques that has excellent research evidence right now in terms of improving self-talk. And one of the mechanisms that seems like it, um, mechanisms of action that have been identified are the reducing judgment. So you're noticing more of your experiences and trying to judge less and trying to judge less than generalizes not just like judging yourself less in the meditation practice. If your mind wanders and you bring it back, it seems to generalize to judging yourself and life less in general. And then another practice with really great um, research evidence is self-compassion practices, in particular, loving kindness meditation. So repeating phrases such as, may I be safe? May I be happy? May I be healthy? Mm -hmm. May I live with ease? Several times internally, And the same thing, when your mind wanders, you try to bring it back with as little judgment as possible. So one of the things, the threads that really um, are remarkable to me here is that you're training attention. Mm -hmm. So you're not just training, feeling good about yourself, but you're training where your attention goes. Mm -hmm. So these practices all teach you to attend to different parts of your experience besides that um, issue of self-evaluation. And so I put some of these practices together and I wanted to see if they worked and a bunch of my students, patients were self-critical. So I had these optional, you know, self-talk classes that lasted four weeks long. I collected data. Um, Students were invited to fill out anonymous questionnaires before and after the sessions at, you know, session one and at session four. And um, I included measures of depression, anxiety, and self-criticism, and all of them decreased significantly after the four weeks. So that gave me some confidence that, hey, you know, these this collection of practices that have been helpful in other contexts are also helpful in a four-week format, and that's the format I teach now in Seattle University. Mm-hmm. But I did want to say that before I started meditating kind of standalone, I went to quite a lot of yoga classes. So yoga was a very important part um, of sort of my development in this area. And so I love hearing your perspectives. I remember judging myself a lot in yoga class. It was <laughs> an true. effort to be like, am I doing the pose right? right? Does the teacher think I look okay? Do the other students look okay? Oh no, back to being inside in the moment. Okay, now I'm judging myself again. Am I doing it right? Mm. And um, it's an interesting thing to work with in yoga class, I think, to try not to evaluate so much, right? Good effort a really good effort, but maybe less constant judgment. Absolutely. And then and then the yoga classes often included meditation. Mm-hmm. And that was a really lovely way to kind of remember mm-hmm. that the goal of yoga, the reason that I wasn't there was to feel that I looked okay in a yoga pose, but to really um, experience more of the inner transformation. 
Mm -hmm. No, absolutely. And uh, it's so interesting to me that just the way yoga has developed in the in the United States and in the Western world, really, it, when I say yoga, people automatically think about, you know, postures. That's what I mean, that's what yoga means, yeah. when really the postures are such a small part of the practice of yoga. Um, there's a, the Yoga Sutras is this ancient yoga text that many uh, yoga teachers will point to. But I believe out of, I think it's 186 sutras, there's like one about asana. That's it. Really? <laughs> and so it's really, it's, so it's really, it, yes. it really is uh, felt to be a preparation. Like the postures are felt to be a preparation yes. for meditation. Like that's really the meat of it is the meditation practice. So anyway, as a reminder to our listeners today, my guest is author, Dr. Rachel Turo. Dr. Turo is a psychotherapist and research scientist. Uh, the book that we're talking about today is The Self-Talk Workout, Six Scientific-Backed Strategies to Dissolve Self-Criticism and Transform the Voice in Your Head. I just love that self-title. It's like, who wouldn't want that? Sign me up. <laughs> you can find out more about Rachel and her work at her website, rachelturo.com. And you can also follow her on LinkedIn if she... Um, publishes a new article, she always uh, you know, puts it on LinkedIn, so you can follow her there as well, Rachel Goldsmith Turo. Um, and this uh, link to her website will be on our webpage at theyogahour.com. We welcome your comments and questions. You can contact us via that website, theyogahour.com, where you can also sign up for our mailing list. So getting back to some of the strategies, you already mentioned several, and I wish we had such a long, much longer period of time to talk through them all. Uh, but I thought we could focus on at least a couple. And again, because meditation is such an important point of uh, yoga, such an important part of yoga, um, I wanted to uh, touch on that. So um, in your experience, and from what you've learned through the scientific research, why is meditation such an important tool for overcoming negative self-talk? Well, it looks like there are a few different active mechanisms at once. So it kind of reminds me of swimming. It's good for your muscles and it's good for your um, cardiovascular health. And it helps you in several ways at the same time. And it looks like that's true for meditation as well. So with respect to the skills and muscles developed in meditation that seem to help self-talk, there are two in particular. The process through which meditation trains attention seems to play a key role. And a lot of my students who are just starting meditation really have this idea that attention or medita and meditation, is it's about staying focused. Okay, never get distracted. Just like hold your focus perfectly. And if you're distracted, <laughs> it's terrible. You know, try to go back, but really you shouldn't have gotten distracted in the first place. Mm. And... I try to challenge that assumption because the evidence indicates that the ability to shift your attention, right. attention goes away and you bring it back is actually a very valuable mental health skill. And because rumination or kind of getting lost and telling yourself the same stories about being depressed or anxious, because rumination plays this huge role in maintaining uh, mental health problems the ability to shift your attention is this enormous asset. And that's one of the things that you cultivate during meditation. So I try to 
remind my students of this, that if your attention wanders and you bring it back as gently and efficiently as possible, if you do that a hundred times, then you're really developing that capacity to shift attention. And if you never got distracted, you would not be able to build that skill. So what seems like a hindrance is actually not a hindrance. It's part of the process of working with the mind. Mm-hmm. And students kind of still feel bad about themselves for losing focus. And then that's really interesting because that's a microcosm of the self-talk, right? right. You, see the habit, you see how your habit is to get upset with yourself when something is hard and to think that you're bad and not doing it well. I'm trying to communicate that this is part of the work. This mm-hmm. is the workout. This isn't something bad about you. This is exactly where you need to be. Mm-hmm. I think that is such an important point because so often people, especially beginning meditators, will get really discouraged because they think that somehow it's supposed to be different than what it is. But I love your description that we're actually building that muscle, that muscle of being able to then just bring our noticing first that our attention, whatever our focal point has been, we notice first that all of a sudden our attention is not on that anymore. We're thinking about something or we're feeling some, something has distracted us. And then the ability to bring that back, but in a non-judgmental fashion, because you can also see that it could just trigger a cascade of more self-talk, right? You know, oh, I knew I was going to be bad at this. I can never, you know, I can never focus, blah, 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 blah. So this idea of just being able to let that go and just return to the point of attention. And then to me, that ability, it's like it creates a space um, in the future. Then when something bad happens, I don't have to like immediately respond as much or as strongly as I might have in the past. I'm more able to choose you know, how I respond to some, something bad that happens during the day, something like that. Yeah, it's tremendous what can happen when you're intentionally building these new habits. And it, I think it does take a while that mm-hmm. to create that sort of space. At the beginning, it might just help to notice the mm-hmm. judgment, say, gosh, I'm really getting angry and frustrated. And then to make room for that too. Okay. Mm -hmm. That's a normal part of things too. This wasn't what I wanted. I wanted to feel peaceful and calm and I wanted to clear my mind and that didn't happen. So I feel disappointed. Okay. Back to the breath that those (laughs) feelings can be there too. It can all be there. You make room for everything. Right. Right. No, that's that's great. The other part is the training non-judgment. So in that very same, um, move that very same rep, if you will, that you noticed your mind went away and you're bringing it back. So you're building your shifting attention skills. You're also working on the non-judgment simultaneously. And Mm -hmm. I think it's kind of a fun way to work with the mind to think, how gently and kindly can I return it? Mm -hmm. I challenge myself to return it as gently and kindly as possible. Mm -hmm. That's great. Yeah, for um, people who may not be as familiar with the eight limbs of yoga. So one limb is actually this practice of concentration, concentration, which then leads into meditation, you know, so it's like you continue to bring your mind back, mind back, mind back. And then what you notice as meditation goes on is you may not get as distracted as often, you know, you can keep that focus a little bit more and a little bit more the thoughts really settle, you know, and quiet. So Let's see, chapter three of your book is entitled Non-Judgment, or at least a lot less judgment. Um, And 
I think you mentioned that a little bit, instead of focusing on self-criticism in particular, meditation reduces self-criticism by decreasing judgmental tendencies in general. Do you see that as something, again, that you build like a muscle, like we were talking about? I think so. Um, and I think some of the neuroscience evidence is really powerful here. So if you think about networks of brain regions that are active in different um moments during your day there's one network called the default mode network that's right. active when we're not really doing much of anything and it's important because it sort of ties your experiences together you're remembering things how they relate to the past and your identity but it's also a network whose activity is associated with rumination so mm. you can kind of get lost and kind of like the greatest hits, the top 40 of, you know, what you tend to think about. And not all of those are really positive experiences. Whereas another collection of brain regions is active when you're really focusing, when you are training your attention. And that network is called the task positive network. Mm. And during the meditation process, the neuroscience indicates that people are actually switching out of the default mode network, that sort of default chatter and switching over to the task positive network and spending more time in that network is associated with less rumination and less depression. Mm -hmm. So that's a really neat sort of brain-based way of seeing how meditation works and how it can reduce uh, self-criticism and reduce rumination and allow yourself to engage with your experience on a deeper level. And I believe the default mode network, isn't that the one that is uh, is functioning for us when we're driving to work, say, on the same route that we take every day? And we, we're conscious exactly. maybe that, you know, we walk out yeah. the door with our cup of coffee, we get in the car, we start the car, and then, like, the next time we actually notice is when we're at work. We're, like, pulling into our parking place, <laughs> like, a half an hour later or something like that, and we've, like, spent that entire time in this default mode network where we're just kind of our consciousness is just not really paying attention to where we are at that moment. Exactly. Yeah. Um, one of your uh, chapters is entitled inhale, my friend, exhale, my friend. I think that's such a lovely thing. So the breath is another uh, pranayama consciousness of, of the breath is another whole limb of yoga. Um, it off, often is used to focus and quiet the mind in preparation for meditation. Um, and of course, we all are familiar with how when we take a deep breath, it can be calming, you know, for ourselves. In fact, before we do something, you know, before we like, you know, are in doing about to do something stressful, we often tell ourselves, go ahead, take a deep breath. <laughs> um, you speak about what happens in the brain when we breathe with awareness, you go into that science in the book, would you say more about that? Yes, um, the breath seems to be this fantastic resource that if you practice with it, you can kind of get to new places mentally and emotionally. And there's that evidence that lengthening the breath, especially lengthening the exhale can help calm you down. And uh, there are other ways that it can impact the nervous system kind of um, engage the parasympathetic nervous system. That's the right. more restful part of the nervous system as opposed to the activated fight or flight one. Um, and it can also be a vehicle for noticing how you relate to yourself. 
And it was actually in a yoga class that I went to a yoga class. I was the only one who showed up because it was a cold, snowy day. And I'm so grateful the teacher didn't cancel the class because this wound up being a really powerful class for me. And it felt very um, deeply, you know, into sort of the philosophy and spiritual side of yoga where she offered this practice, inhale my friend, exhale my friend. Mm -hmm. And a whole hour of being with the breath, Mm -hmm. perhaps in some poses, out of some poses, but just as sort of this unifying element that's always there. And it's been a really interesting resource to offer students because meditation is hard, but one breath sounds manageable. Okay, how about just a breath? Inhale my friend, Exhale, my friend. Okay, I can do that. Yeah. Um, We were just talking about the default mode network. And you present some information about how focus on the breath helps us to disconnect from that. Would you say more about that? The default mode network is sort of this tangle, right? It's this interconnected web of all the stuff you've been through and all the stuff on your mind that kind of goes around and around. And as you know, it's really hard to pay attention to any breath that you're having in the past or the future. The only one we can really notice is this one right now, which is fabulous because it's a way of kind of narrowing the experience, making it more manageable instead of, okay, everything in life I have to deal with is just, oh, it's overwhelming. But just this one breath is manageable and I can really tune in to the sensations So when I do that, I'm shifting over from that default mode network of all that noise and overwhelm into this task positive network where I know what I'm doing. I'm focusing on this thing here right now. And if I get distracted, I can practice coming back again. But this breath is here. As long as I'm alive, this breath is here. And I have Mm. this opportunity to tune into it. And in doing that, I can change my experience. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Now that that's great. So this is an, a mantra actually that you you know that you mentioned, um, repeated phrase technique of inhale my friend, exhale my friend. Could you go over that technique for our listeners and and how it works? Sure. So it's either one breath long or more breaths, the amount of breaths that feel right for you, and as you're breathing in. You can say to yourself silently, inhale, my friend. And then as you exhale, exhale, my friend. If those words aren't right for you, you could say my dear, my love, even your name. It could be in another language besides English, of course. Um, So you find kind of a phrase that's right for you and you can experiment. What is it like to call myself a friend as I breathe in and out? What is it like to offer myself some love and care and integrate that into my breathing. Lovely. And I love how it can just be one breath. So <laughs> we can always find room for that one breath. Right. Yeah. I do it waking up in the elevator. It's really nice to have something kind of short, just a second to tune in. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Um, Did you want to say any more about this process of repetition? Um, I actually really liked how you were talking about at the beginning of the book, you were saying oftentimes 
um, the advice is just turn down the volume of those negative thoughts. Just turn down the volume. And your comment in the book was like, where is the knob? Where is the knob? That got a good laugh out of me. So, um, you know, in terms of repetition, um, you're talking about taking a few minutes each day to be able to do this. And, And again, would you say more about why that's important? Well, the habit of painful self-criticism is usually built up over years and decades. And the mind learns from experience. So it can just be quite strong. So in order to build new habits, the um, importance of repetition is, is really key. There has to be some sort of repetition, maybe not for everyone. Maybe there are some people out there who can just decide to think entirely differently but we know that um, the evidence indicates that practicing for at least you know three to seven weeks, um, several times a week shows significant benefits. And you know I like to fi- follow the data and to say, mm-hmm. well, it might work for you to just decide, but for most people, you need right. to have several weeks of practice. And I really appreciated the different atmospheres that I was in, you know, yoga classes, retreats, etc., where I was sitting down with a group of people and I have a meditation Sangha now that meets regularly. And it's kind of helpful to have a specific time that's already designated. And you know that you're going to that and other people will be there as well. Had another period in my life where there was a free meditation, a few blocks from my, my house. um, And I think it was every morning at seven 30. So I knew that it was a specific time and place. I think it's a little harder on your own. And I did this for a period of time where it was my practice in the morning after breakfast to sit and meditate um, for various reasons. That's more difficult now. But now there are, you know, lots of resources online. If there are meditations or yoga practices online that you you find one you like, because there's so many available, and then you can incorporate that more easily. You know that it's five minutes long, it's 10 minutes long. There's also so many different meeting spaces online now mm-hmm. um, or in person still. And so you really do have that option. And I think people can think through, okay, is this something if I really want to put in, you know, three to seven weeks or more or make this part of my lifetime practice? Is this something that I want to do by myself with a community, with an online resource, with an app? And there are lots of different choices. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And getting back to this idea that it is like a muscle, you know, that we have to, that we have to work at. It's not something that we can just, you know, turn down that, you know, turn down that volume. (laughs) That's that's right, Laurel. And sorry. (laughs) I also just want to mention that, of course, practice can fluctuate. And I don't want people to feel bad about themselves for not practicing regularly (laughs) enough, their self-talk skills. So (laughs) it's normal for this to, you know, go up and down and you have a week practice every day and the next week only twice and um, it's you don't have to feel like it's all or nothing like you won't get the benefits if you don't do it exactly perfectly I don't think that's the case at all yeah I think that's such a great reminder we don't want to give people yet another thing to feel bad (laughs) badly about (laughs) right right um if someone wanted to practice this and was willing to set aside say they wanted to do it try and do it on their own and obviously Buying the book is a great first place to start. But if there were something like one piece of advice that you could give them as a way to start, what would be a practice? Would it be this um, this inhale, my friend, exhale, my friend, or, or maybe a different one? 
I would say either the inhale, my friend, exhale, my friend, or spot the success would be Mm -hmm. really good appetizers. You know, Mm -hmm. if you weren't sure you were ready or you really liked it, um, spot the success is the one where you write down the 10 behaviors that have been helpful. It's very straightforward. It doesn't really involve any sort of, you know, specialized mental skills or new practices. So it seems like people can get into it right away. And you did talk about in the book, you mentioned uh, Rick Hansen and his work on, um, you know, how the the mind is like Velcro for the negative experiences. And it's like Teflon for positive experiences, how at the end of the day, we often do, um, you know, if we think back on all the things that happened, the things that are most like sticky to our minds is that one thing that we said that we wish we hadn't said, or the one thing that we did that we wish we'd done better. I totally feel that when I'm going to sleep, sometimes it's like, Oh, I wish I could just get that out of my head. So it's really nice to think about some of the positive things that happened, like you said, that either benefited ourselves or someone else. Um, And you gave some good examples of even just taking out the trash for, you know, which helps people in our, that we're living with in our, in our home or sending that positive, sending that positive text. Yes. These things all matter. And I think it's a nice way to fall asleep, to review some of the happiest moments, most joyful or the positive things that I contributed that maybe I disregarded in the moment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Um, You Uh, Talk about witness consciousness. That's something that we've mentioned. Um, And I I wanted to return to that just for a minute. You say that meditation allows us to handle self-criticism the moment that it arises. Um, And this idea of this witness consciousness that I think kind of is developed partly through a, you know, through a meditation practice that we begin to notice our inner thoughts as they arise or notice in meditation, that time when we are distracted, um, you know, who is it? What is it that allows us to notice, right? That all of a sudden I I had wanted to focus on my breath. And now all of a sudden I'm thinking about what I need to do when this, you know, when, when uh, um, my meditation session ends, all of a sudden I'm thinking about this errand that I'm going to run like later later on this morning. (laughs) So there is something that, you know, that, um, that notices that, which I think is just, fabulous (laughs) that we have a noticer (laughs) that can help us, you know, help us notice and get back to what we were trying to focus on. Would you describe what you mean by witness consciousness and how that's an important tool for overcoming self-criticism? Yeah. So the mind is a complex place, right? There's the part of ourselves that is experiencing. It's kind of uh, living in the sensations and then other aspects of our mind, making a lot of interpretations um, about who we are, what it all means, etc. And I think it's really easy to feel like that's all there is. Mm-hmm. And what struck me when I began meditating was I felt like I grew this sort of witness part mm-hmm. that no matter what I was feeling or experiencing, <clears throat> I could also notice it mindfully. And then I could start to notice it kindly. Mm -hmm. So I think about a kind witness. And there are lots of ways to tune into that sort of energy. I often think about sort of 
reparenting ourselves. If there's anything that maybe we didn't get from the experience that we have, we have this opportunity just like a, um, a really kind, attuned parent would notice their child's experience, not try to have the experience for them, but just mm-hmm. try to be kind of a helpful noticing presence. We can be that way towards ourselves as well. We can be helpful and we can be noticing. And I think it also provides some freedom because then you're not inside the emotions in that over-identified state where you think I am anger. This is the full truth of who I am. I mean, you might not think that consciously, but that can be experience, right? Like, or, (laughs) or, you know, I'm so jealous and I'm terrible for being jealous and it's awful. You know, if you start to have that, that noticing perspective, which is less judgmental, it's like, huh, jealousy. Okay. Where do I feel that in my body? Mm -hmm. Okay. That's getting more intense now. Okay. Now it's getting less intense and it provides some freedom because it's not deep inside. It's sort of noticing. And what I like about this kind witness perspective is that everything is there, not just that immediate challenging experience, but okay. There's also, um, the way my feet feel and, the way that I'm breathing and how hungry I am. There's a lot more to notice. And uh, that spaciousness, I think, provides a lot of um, of resource and comfort. Mm-hmm. I love that as a word to describe that state, that spaciousness, because it does feel that way to me. And I notice I have more of that spaciousness when I when my meditation practice is strong, steady, and less of that when my meditation practice <laughs> is not. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> I feel the same way. Well, um, I know that we could go on for quite a long time, but we have come to the end of our time or close to the end. Um, what words of encouragement or inspiration would you like to leave with our listeners? I would like to encourage people that you really can change how you relate to yourself. People often think this is a fixed characteristic, like your eye color, Mm -hmm. but it isn't. We have the evidence this is not a fixed characteristic, that it can indeed be changed with intentional practice. So it's very challenging. It can be difficult, but we have a lot of people who have gone on this path and there are different paths that have been shown to be helpful. So the research is out there and I really encourage people to experiment and to try to challenge that assumption that, oh, I'm my own worst critic means that that's the person you have to be forever. Mm -hmm. You don't have to be your worst critic anymore. You Mm -hmm. can start to be a friend. Mm -hmm. Wow. That is encouraging and hopeful. That's really, really great. You've been listening to the yoga hour. It's been my pleasure to share this time with you. I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo, producer and host of The Yoga Hour. My guest today has been author, Dr. Rachel Goldsmith-Turo. She is the author of the book we've been discussing today, The Self-Talk Workout, Six Scientific-Backed Strategies to Dissolve Self-Criticism and Transform the Voice in Your Head. You can find out more about Dr. Turo and her books and programs at her website, Rachel Turo. And again, Turo is T-U-R-O-W, rachelturo.com. This link will be on our website, along with the podcast at theyogahour.com. 
We welcome your comments and questions. You can contact us via that website. And I wanted to thank you, Rachel Turo, for joining me today on the show. Thank you so much. And thanks. It's been a pleasure to be here. And I've really enjoyed speaking with you, Laurel. Oh, me too. It's been a great conversation. For listeners, we hope you will join us for the many online programs offered by the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment, which is the sponsor for this show. There's daily online meditation in the morning at 6.30 a.m. Pacific, the afternoon at 4, and Monday evenings at 7.30. Again, all those times are Pacific time. There's also a Sunday satsang. Satsang is a Sanskrit word that means a gathering of truth seekers. That happens at 10 a.m. Pacific each week. Another podcast that might interest you is the Kriya Yoga Today podcast with Yogacharya Ellen Grace O'Brien, which you can also find wherever you get your podcasts or through the CSE website, csecenter.org. <clears throat> Again, you can check that website, csecenter.org, for many other classes and events upcoming at the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment. Join us next time on the Yoga Hour when my guest will be Nayaswami Devarshi of the Ananda community. We'll be discussing how the teaching and Zen practices of Kriya Yoga can be life transforming. The Yoga Hour is a service project of the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment, a meditation center in the Kriya Yoga tradition. Remember, you can subscribe to the show. And the thing that's most helpful, if you're enjoying a, a particular show, go ahead and share it with a friend. Thank you to the Yoga Hour team. Founder and Spiritual Director, Yogacharya Ellen Grace O'Brien, Assistant Producers Anne Hayes, Mickey Coronado, Christine Sote, and Lauren Leidinger. I look forward to being with you again. Until then, remember, you carry your own healing and wholeness within you. Share your peace and joy with all you meet. Bye now. <laughs>